Hey there, conductors. If you've ever felt that you're not quite sure what to do next when you're studying a score, maybe you don't even know where to start with a difficult piece. Maybe you study one piece too much and then you realize at the first rehearsal that you don't know another one well enough. Or maybe you're a new conductor and you don't know what score study is. I'm excited to share that I'm finally publishing and sharing my score study checklist. I've been refining this for 12 years now, and I'm so excited to share it. It is going to walk you through my structure, my process to make sure that I learn every score that I need to learn well enough and so that nothing falls through the cracks. So it covers everything that you need to know. There's a link in the show notes. Go ahead and click it, sign up, and you'll get that score study checklist sent right to your email. You'll also get access to an eight-minute video of me explaining what each section is and how I use it to organize all the music that I need to learn. It's only eight minutes, so it's not going to take you a whole hour to learn how to study better, how to put up a process for your score study and how to make sure that nothing is falling through the cracks. So again, click the link in the show notes, and I hope to see you soon. Now, please enjoy this episode of Podium Time. Welcome to a special episode of Podium Time, the podcast for conductors and students. Today, we speak with Gary Lewis and Larry Livingston. Hello and welcome back, or welcome for the first time, to Podium Time. You're listening to a very special episode because this summer Luke and I had the great pleasure of attending the CU Boulder Orchestral Conducting Symposium. We met a great group of conductors and got to work with the fantastic Gary Lewis and the always inspiring Larry Livingston, both of whom are here to talk with us today. We discussed with them how to prepare for workshops, how to solidify changes you make in your conducting, and some of our most common bad habits. Now, one other cool thing about this episode is that the music you hear now and what you'll hear at the end of the episode are both recordings from my and Luke's sessions at the workshops. I'm conducting the Appalachian Spring excerpt, and Luke will be conducting Tchaikovsky at the end. It's pretty cool. I, 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 liked, I was pretty proud of that idea when I thought of that. Anyway, um, I'm also realizing just now how slow my tempo was, so either ignore that or just speed it up if your podcast player can do that. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this special episode of Podium Time. <laughs> I wasn't I wasn't clear. Sorry, bassoon player. We're here with uh, Professor Gary Lewis and Larry Livingston after a fantastic week at the CU Boulder Orchestral Conducting Symposium. Uh, you've got a you've got the question. Oh yeah. <laughs> so um, so we would like to ask like how the workshop started. Was it just something you did because the band had already been doing it and. You know, um, there's not, is there things around the area like this, or is it something that's kind of only offered in the area? We're trying to, what I was trying to do was to fill a niche. Uh, there are a lot of workshops out there designed for the aspiring maestro who wants to conduct professional orchestras, League of American Orchestras, uh, Conductors Guild, International Conductors Conducting Workshops. There, there are a lot that are designed for, for someone on that career trajectory. But I, as I traveled around and you know met with music educators around the country and, and adjudicated festivals and realized that you know the, there's a need for people who are conducting this repertoire on a regular basis, um, who are principally educators or young conductors who are just wanting to get better, uh, there was a need for something to serve them. Um, so since we're doing primarily uh, string repertoire, but also some full orchestra repertoire that people need and know need to know and our conducting. Uh, that's, that was the premise on which this particular workshop was designed. And this is our third year, and um, 
you know, thanks to the fabulous expertise of our guest clinicians like Larry, um, it's been a really huge success. And you two have worked together before. You seem to you seem to work really well together. You know, you interestingly, not in, ever in this setting. Yeah. Uh, you know, so it's been, that's it's been a real joy for me to get. But I knew that we would be um, simpatico. You know, just because <laughs> I knew that you know. Uh, the kind of musician, person, human being that Larry is, I know he would be wonderful for the participants mm -hmm. to, to interact with. So, mm -hmm. And so in preparation, what are some of the some of the basic and not so basic things you would suggest people that are interested in this workshop <clears throat> kind of um, do before to prepare? What, what, what are some things they should bring or, or look at ahead of time? What do you suggest? Well, I think with any workshop or any conducting opportunity, whether it's the, a rehearsal or a workshop or a performance, you know, the, the most important thing is that you know the score to the best degree possible. You're going to get more out of a workshop like this. You're going to be more aware in your rehearsals. Your performances are going to be more uh, informed and inspired. So I think the single greatest thing that can ensure that you will benefit the most from any conducting opportunity, whether it's principally learning like this or performance, it's having the score internalized to the best degree possible. And then you're free to interact and be aware and, and accept you know, suggestions such as this. Larry? I, I agree. I, I think um, the number one thing is know the music. And what we saw today, which is common in these workshops, is a variety of preparedness from pretty good to not enough. And if you were to say to me, uh, how do you feel about doing this, uh, say, Mahler 5, which I've done many times, and I'm going out to conduct uh, the concert, not prepared. So I, I, I'm saying that there's never enough so you can know everything. Uh, and as Gary said, once you really know, and that doesn't mean just knowing the oboe comes in measure four. The question is, what is it about? What, what does this mean? What's the point of it? What is its character? What is its value in the larger scope of things? And that's a big excavation. And uh, so I would just encourage people to continue preparing in a way that there is absolutely nothing before you get on the podium that you haven't thought of, and then you're going to have a whole bunch of stuff you haven't thought of. <laughs> but if you're getting up here and going, you know, and a couple of the, of the conductors admitted to me, I really feel bad because I really wasn't prepared. Then it's difficult for to know how to be helpful. And then what happens is, we're all a catalog of habits. That's how human beings are. What you want is good habits. The only way you can get good habits is to have everything that you need to know about the music so you can spend all of your time thinking about the way you're conducting. If you have to divide that time, all the old habits will own you. So it, it just you have to know the song. And then uh, part, of, sorry, uh, part of the challenge here is if you, you're a, a fiddle player, Okay, there's no excuse for you not having huge opinions about Mozart. <laughs> what do you play? The horn. Okay, uh, some. Some. Saxophone, nothing. Tuba, nothing. <laughs> not that those instruments are, are irrelevant, but the culture and the musical world from which all this repertoire that we worked on today grows is having to do with how string players address music and the way composers looked at that. And so it's sometimes, Ross Finney used to call it the enculturation process. Mm -hmm. How do you get enculturated? And so uh, there were some wonderful uh, young people who conducted here, but it, it's, it's obvious they um, are short of understanding at the core how this works. 
So I don't know if I told the story about Esapeka. Did I tell that story? Yeah, I don't remember. Esapeka was doing the Berg Three Pieces with Swedish Radio Orchestra. Mm-hmm. And did I tell, if I don't want to bore you. Oh, no. no. Okay. So, so he'd, he'd read all the letters, complete harmonic analysis, I mean, everything. And I said, how was it? He said, I got up on the podium and there's only one problem. I said, what is it? I didn't know how it goes. <laughs> and if you're going to conduct a professional orchestra, most of the repertoire they've done before. Mm-hmm. So you have to know how it goes. And that means immersing yourself in the traditions from which that how it goes result emanates. And if you play, uh, if you want to play a string instrument, Piano, violin, and cello, you're already on the road. Mm-hmm. So um, I would encourage wind players who come, which is great to have them here, really do, don't listen to band music. I, I'm going to get in trouble. Don't li- <laughs> uh, listen to real oh, okay. listen, <laughs> listen to this music from which Mozart is birthed mm-hmm. so that you have an idea. And then um, become as connected as you can to a friend who plays violin and drive the person crazy. I would just say one more thing on this basic subject, and that is if you're having to think when you're on the podium, you're already in trouble. You know? yeah. And of course we're thinking on so many different levels, but if we're having to concentrate on, on one issue to the expense of everything else, you know, that's when we either are not hearing or we're not aware or we're not connecting with our inner musician or we're not connecting with the musician. <laughs> so the more that sort of hard thinking is done in the, in the preparation process, then you're free when you get on the podium to really connect. So, yeah, the, the development of the conducting technique, I mean, if you think about it, everybody who is here for this workshop has been in music for 10 or 15 years or more. But the amount of time people who have spent on conducting compared to the amount of time they've spent playing the oboe or clarinet or flute is trivial. And yet the muscle habits and the development of comfort with technique is equally difficult to acquire. So uh, I think just practicing in front of a mirror, beating. How does this look? Can I do it without invoking my head? Can I make a crescendo while I'm at Starbucks? Or am I doing this? <laughs> so that you start to have equipment. Because if you watch professional athletes, you watch Roger Federer. I'm a big tennis fan, Roger Federer. You know, any tennis teacher would tell you, when you hit the ball, you cannot look at the ball after it leaves your racket. You have to keep looking at the ball. So the ingraining of good habits allows these people to work at this premier level. Mm -hmm. And that's a lot to ask for an aspiring conductor, but that's really the point of it, is so that your muscle memory allows you to really focus, as Gary said, totally on the music. And then you have to figure out what it is you want. It's Reynolds, Bob Reynolds is conducting, it's easy. You have to know exactly what you want. You don't give up till you get it. One, uh, one problem that I know a lot of students have at workshops, and Luke and I have talked about this before, is, um, is getting, getting your commentary and practicing it and applying it, but then once you get on the podium, everything goes away. And oh, sure. It's kind of, so do you have any thoughts about that? Or, or like something I noticed, especially this week, and I, it happens a lot, is um, I'll have a, a couple things that I've been told, and I'm like, okay, I'm thinking about these things, and I get up there, and I think about one, and I automatically forget about the other. Sure. And, and so, like... <laughs> I think, I think um, it, it's inherently a clinical situation, which makes it difficult. Uh, but as I said at the very beginning of the week, much of the improvement is going to be between the times you're on the podium or after you leave here when you are internalizing all these things and, and you know thinking about them, meditating on them, and focusing sometimes just on one issue at a time, 
You know, and it's true. We Larry and I vowed to each other we try not to bombard people with a bazillion different things, but try to get to a bullseye. You know that we thought would help you the most. And but regardless of that, it's always difficult to incorporate things immediately. So I think it's just a matter of an accumulation of knowledge of concepts. And what I'm after at these workshops is to get people to trust that that's going to work. They might not be able to do it that way every time, but once you experience it, oh yeah, I don't have to give a huge upbeat here. Or yeah, if I just give a little click here, or if I breathe here, or if I listen here, that works. And just learning learning to trust that one time, then you can recall that as you continue to grow and mature. So. Uh, George Miller was a psychologist at Harvard, and he's the guy who created the Miller number, which is seven plus or minus two. So if you look at our phone numbers, they're grouped. You have first uh, the country code, and then three digits, and then seven. And there's a reason for that, uh, so, uh, because it's hard to store more than that. So the metaphor of that is if you have two or three things, maybe what you need to do is actually say, I'm only going to work on one now, because I want to make sure that I clean out complications so I can work on this. And then maybe uh, five minutes later you take a break and work on the second thing and then try to put them together. Every pianist, including Agarich, who I had the good fortune to play with years ago, practice hands alone. Mm-hmm. You have to go, keep going back. So I, I would recommend that you um, take what, what Gary's wonderful at and I try as well to do is to be a conceptual junkie. Okay, it's not about this measure. It's about the, this is an example of something you're going to face all the time. So, so we've tried to focus on that. And then if you feel like you have conceptual ideas, three or four, that's enough. And then work on those. And you need to do it away from the matting crowd. You need to have a safe space so you can look awful. Because when you are on the podium and you become self-conscious, then you have to, you basically inevitably are going to compromise. So this and what's going to happen when you work on simple technical issues is for very often you're going to have to momentarily forego the musical value you want. And that's frustrating because now it feels like I'm a robot. Okay, well, first we have to be able to walk and not tip over, okay? And then to gradually invest in your hands the expressive zeal that you feel. Because what happens is if you look, for me, this at least, if you look at... Um, Espressivo as as a pie. If you divide the pie, it's part of it's in my head, part of it's in my shoulders. And I'm leaning over. We have now fractionated this, and the goal is 100% of it is here. 100% is my hand and my face. Easy to say, hard to do. But to get there, you can't do both. You have to start with I'm just going to do this technically correct. Now um, we have two kinds of violin teaching in the country. I don't, I don't, this is again my two cents worth. Dorothy DeLay, who was an old friend of mine, now deceased, was the most famous violin teacher in the world when she was alive. She taught at Juilliard and at Cincinnati and all Sarah Lawrence, and I brought her to New England. And she was a genius at teaching the machine. Joseph Gingold, who, uh, did you ever know? Didn't know him. Uh, Joe Gingold, who was, uh, was much older than me, it's possible, uh, <laughs> died many years ago, taught the fiddle through the music. So, of course, that's the ideal. But eventually you have to have the courage to purify and say, what is it I really want? And that's the question, what do I want? Because we often think we want this, but then our behavior is going over here. So you want to get better? Take the pain. Carl St. Clair, it was Gustav from Missouri, told him for a whole semester he could not leave his elbow 
from, it was like the upright piano, mm -hmm. whole semester, so that he was not allowed to use his shoulder mm -hmm. and any other part of his body. Larry Ratcliffe, who's a wonderful friend of ours, a tremendous musician, drove, what's the guy who killed himself, unfortunately, over him, a violinist, oh, Greg, uh, anyway, Larry, uh, when he was at Oberlin, he just basically knocked on the door of this violinist every day with scores because he wanted to get that perspective. Mm -hmm. So part of, it, part of it is breaking down the variables and focusing at each and then assembling them when you feel you can. Remember when you learned two against three? Yeah. And when, before someone told you that you could make a com combination of it, mm -hmm. it was difficult, right? So you both do a lot of teaching, and uh, preparedness has been mentioned already, but what are the, some of the most common, maybe physical, um, things that you see that you have to, that you have to kind of fix? Because um, I feel that before you can work on what's unique about your teaching and what's unique about the student, sometimes, uh, this week at least, I saw a couple times where maybe something more basic had to be fixed. Can you talk about that? <clears throat> well, the hardest aspect of conducting to teach, I think, is listening mm -hmm. and is learning how to really listen to the orchestra or to the ensemble um, because there's a difference between hearing and listening. You can hear that something's there, but listening implies something that's really focused. And when we're up there thinking, and the more we think and the more we move, the less we hear. So uh, that's something that I've tried to focus on in my teaching of conducting more and more <laughs> is not, you know, what does my left elbow do here? but how are my students or how am I really listening to the group and how does that oral model that you've developed through your study compare to what the group's actually doing mm -hmm. and then how does my gesture affect what the group is doing so listening on that really sort of focused detail level is important when you teach young musicians for a long time then we tend to develop it's easy to develop bad habits because we're trying to help them all the time because they need our help but many times the habits that we develop in, our, in an attempt to help actually make it more difficult for the musicians. So backbeat or subdividing heavily or giving way too big a preparation or slowing down here because we have to give such a huge cue to get their attention that we actually, you know, change the tempo. So, so there are some habits that can actually become ingrained when you're working with young musicians. So I'd say those are a few things that I've noticed. Yeah, Drurian used to say to me, Larry, let them do it. Don't You don't have to make everything. Let them do it. Um, for me, I think the first thing is, I think as I mentioned maybe in one of our follow-on sessions, we don't have in the West a deep reverence for the body. Athletes do, and if you're a ballet dancer, but in general, movement is not considered to be an essential part of one's evolution and education. Our schools don't deal with it. We have gym class. <laughs> um, so the idea of feeling a natural physical relationship to music ends up with most conducted, conductors, to me, looking untoward and awkward and unnatural because they feel the music, but they're not able to reveal it in a simple and, and kind of organic way. So part of it has to do with taking away all the extracurricular distractions and making everything happen as simple and clearly here as possible. And that sounds easy to do, but um, almost every conductor here would benefit from being more still. Standing mm -hmm. still, standing up, You talk, we talked about that, and just 
taking care of what you need with your hand. So that's uh, one issue that I find is um, often vexing almost every workshop I do. And the reason that I'm halfway decent at it is because that's one of 75,000 bad habits I have. <laughs> so I had to work really hard to get to whatever naturalness I have now. And so I'm able then to relate to these developmental issues because I've struggled with them uh, uh, in my whole life. And the second thing is that, as I said a minute ago, in the end, the point of conducting is to explain the music in a way that seems inherently natural. And as easy as that is to say, is very hard to do. We end up messing with it. We end up massaging it and pushing it and pulling it. And, and somehow, in our well-intentioned effort to make it, we distort it. We, we're not able to connect to it. And part of that has to do, in my opinion, with uh, in, in my conducting class, which I, I don't teach conducting majors. I only took two, and the rest I let somebody else teach, not at my school. Uh, but I have minor fields, DMA students who are minoring in conducting. And I tell them, for a whole semester, I'm going to be as pushy as I can. I want to help you to look like a great version of you, not like me. And when we're done with the semester, I want you to forget everything I told you and be the music. Just be the music. So what would you look like if you didn't know anything about conducting? Because one of the worst problems we have is conducting. We get stuck in the conducting trap. And conducting really should be um, something, if you're walking down the street and you're thinking about music and you're conducting, strangers, un the unwashed, should have an idea of what you're doing. And often I think the average Joe on the street would conduct better than we do just because they would do the music instead of trying to fit it into this box that we start with, you know, this basic vocabulary. I would offer just a couple of other things on this one. I remember Gustav Meyer always saying that you have to give up a certain kind of control to to get to to achieve a much more sense, a much more heightened type of control, a much more sophisticated kind of control. And I think that's what Larry was alluding to. We want to control everything, but we have to give up that certain kind of control to actually get a much more sophisticated type. And then tension is the enemy of all things. And it's certainly the, the enemy of music and the enemy of conducting. And so physical tension, we've seen almost everybody deal with that in one way or another this week. So. If you watch Bobby McFerrin conduct, and watch the comedian Jerry Lewis, who's probably... Or Danny Kaye. How old he is now. Uh, there's a movie in which Jerry Lewis conducts a big band, a jazz band. And he's not a conductor. But all the moves he has are perfect. Every one of them is organic. It's not really kind of conducting technically, but it works. And Danny Kaye, um, who did for years musician trust fund concerts with orchestras as a fundraiser, he didn't read music either. Uh, so somehow the asset of learning music, especially by Augen, by eye, becomes in a way a little bit of a liability. So... The idea of actually, in the end, developing a way of showing what you want is a way of purifying and simplifying. So it becomes less is more, and then it's all about inference rather than the literal instruction. But to get there is hard. I mean, conducting should be hard. Otherwise, everybody would do it, right? One of our favorite questions to ask is, if there's a piece that, as a young conductor, could teach us the most, 
I don't know about that, but I think Larry and I were talking earlier in the week. Music that offers less specific instruction is the hardest to achieve. So, I mean, it's easier to make Hindemith sound good, I think, in a way than it is to make Mozart interesting or Beethoven or Haydn or Bach because it just requires so much more depth of musicianship, um, more introspection, more getting behind the notes um, uh, than, than something that's more modern that where the composer gives us more information to deal with. Uh, and the answers are not in the score which is true of um, music before the 20th century, especially 19th century and 18th century. This is useful. But I, I would recommend that every piece has stuff to teach. And then you kind of keep a file on your computer or write it down. What am I trying to get from this piece? And then make it conceptual, not just this measure. What happens here that I'm going to run into again? And you start assembling then a collection of ways to solve problems and then move on to the next piece and then pick pieces that are quite different. We, we, it's obvious that conducting slow music is hard because it doesn't have any motoric uh, advantage. Okay, uh, not that that's easy, but it's way easier than Barber. Uh, so uh, I would look at a piece and say, what can I get from this? And I don't think it is helpful, especially for a developing young conductor, to take on a model symphony. It's too big. There's so many issues you have to deal with. Maybe the exposition or, or a segment of it. And I think then you just assemble it. So when you're like taking, I took golf lessons. And uh, I, I was worried that my golf teacher was just going to kill himself after having to deal with me. <laughs> But he was a really good teacher, and he did not give me 80 things to think about. And the first thing he told me was, your grip is completely wrong. Not sort of wrong, completely wrong. <laughs> and so he showed me the correct grip. I felt like an octopus crawling through a fence. I could not use this grip. Now, I can't remember the old grip. So I made grip, the metaphor, learning to beat simply. I made that an issue. And now I'm still terrible. But there's a, even more of a, a little bit more of a chance that I will occasionally do something correct. So if you look at golfers, they're constantly looking at every aspect of the physicality. And for conductors, we have to keep doing that. How, you, you're, how, long, how, many, how many hours a day do you practice violin? Not too much. Yeah, well, you Not used anymore. To. You used to, right? Yeah. And, what, and you play uh, the horn. Yeah. Okay. Think about the time invested. And then I think that simpler and shorter pieces at the beginning. Um, so Holberg's a great example, because in my opinion, Grieg's idea of what he was capable of was nicely married to the limits he actually has as a composer. <laughs> so the result of it is he's not trying to be Bruckner, uh, who, in my opinion, had a slightly exaggerated idea of how many little repeats we can put up with before we throw up. <laughs> so um, you have this beautiful gem. Dvorak's a completely different level of music, completely different, way more sophisticated. So Greek, and each movement has something to offer. Can I start to bring it on so they can find it? And how do I do that? And how do I make the transition from the end of the rigadon to the minimoso? All those things are 
kind of building blocks. And eventually, if you do that enough, you, can, you accumulate enough techniques so you can take on the bigger dogs. This doesn't exactly answer your question, but I'm reminded of hearing Leon Fleischer say once that Mozart will make your Tchaikovsky better, but Tchaikovsky won't necessarily make your Mozart better. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's an interesting thought. All right. Well, I think we'll let you guys go eat. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, thank, thank you, you. Yeah, thank so you very much. much. It was a pleasure to work with both of you. All right. So that's the end of the episode. Thank you very much for listening, but don't go away just yet. Um, I kept the camera running after our interview, and I'm really glad I did because Larry had some fantastic little bits of wisdom um, to share. So I'll introduce each of those. This first one, he's talking about the inherent nature of a piece and finding what contradicts it and emphasizing that. So we were doing the Barbara Adagio, and he points out that it's, it's a very legato piece, so you want to find the places where it's not legato. One of my mantras in, in studying and, and, and conducting what is the inherent nature of this piece? This is a legato piece. This is a new legato piece. I'm constantly looking for any get-out-of-jail moments where he changes that. And notice we have here a, a syncopation entrance, all right? Now, you could say it's just contributing to the rhythmic vitality of this bar. But if there's ever a moment where I can make something out of slight punctuation, I want to do it because there aren't many of those. The point is to... Um, Look for what's elusive. That's why in Dvorak, those mosquito bites are such a delightful part of it. And because they're hard, and because the music's mostly linear, we tend to kind of skate over those. Mm -hmm. And if you don't hear those, you've missed one of the magical things that he's made in this music. So the idea is the piece is all staccato, I want legato. The piece is all loud, where is it soft? Yeah. Uh, where are those variables? And genius composers find ways to insert those um, so that it creates interesting new life. All right, this next excerpt is talking about uh, the difficulties of getting better at conducting. So when everything's getting better, if there's one thing that's not as good as the others, it stands out even more. Um, if you buy a suit at Neiman Marcus, do you know what Neiman Marcus is? Is an incredibly expensive store out of Texas, okay? If you buy a suit from Neiman Marcus, you can't wear a tie from Target. Yeah. So the point is, <laughs> if you begin to sculpt and show, and I'm buying it, any slight deviation from it is more noticeable. Okay. On the other hand, if you're still trying to work it out, it, there's stuff all over the place. But it becomes, it, the thing is, conducting becomes more difficult the better you get at it. Because then everything that doesn't quite meet the standard you've set, it's like playing golf with, with uh, Tiger Woods and me hitting a five iron in the middle of the round, and, you know, going into the woods or something, all right? So. And finally, we have a little bit about the Barber Adagio, just the opening of the piece. Uh, this was a piece that a lot of different people did, and there are a lot of different ways to do that first note, and we actually spent a lot of time working on that. Larry felt very, very strongly about it, having an idea of what the rest of the piece is. So here's that. I think this, this uh, B-flat needs to have a sense of living on its own without any hurry to get to the chord, okay. so that we establish... What is the, the, in Deutsch Grundgestalt, what's the basic idea? And it's all here. The rest is elaboration on the basic idea.
Well, there you have it. Thank you very much for listening to our interview with Gary Lewis and Larry Livingston after the CU Boulder Orchestral Conducting Workshop. Music at the beginning of the episode is Aaron Copeland's Appalachian Spring, conducted by Jeremy D. Cuevas at the workshop. Music at the end is the waltz from Tchaikovsky's Serenade for Strings, conducted by Luke Lyons. You can find all of our show notes and blog posts at podiumtimepod.wordpress.com, and please connect with us on Facebook at facebook.com slash podiumtimepod.